Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Quick Start Podcast from the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. I'm your host, Jeremy Goldmeyer. Today, we're talking all things Jane Austen with Rebecca Miller, who plays Charlotte Lucas in our main stage production of Pride and Prejudice. We talked about the production, how Rebecca relates to her character, and the unexpected way in which she got introduced to Jane Austen's writings. Hint, it involves the undead. Enjoy the episode, and don't forget to get your tickets for Pride and Prejudice, now playing through December 29th. You can get those at repstl.org or by calling 314-968-4925. Rebecca, thanks for joining us on the Quick Start Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We were just talking about your amazing experience with this show so far. We just finished the first weekend of performances. How was that? Really exciting. Super fun. Um, And it's that sort of revving up through previews and rehearsing, and then you open, and it's super exciting. And then as you're performing, of course, in front of an audience, you start to really lock in the show and you start to even discover and build and grow. And I think it's just going to keep going. I think it's going to keep getting better and sharper. And I'm really excited for the next few weeks. Yeah. It's yeah. Really you, you sort of, you're over the peak of the roller coaster now, right? Hopefully. Yeah. This way you can just sort of like ride that train. Um, and I, you know, it's been helpful that all of us finally have gotten some sleep, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Especially Katie. Uh, who plays Elizabeth Bennett because she is on stage, I think, the entire show. Um, But everybody's doing such a beautiful job, and they're also such amazing people to work with, so I feel really lucky to be here. Yeah, what have you guys discovered now that you have audiences reacting to what you're doing? I mean, there's moments of, you know, that... I love that there's the pre-curtain speech here where... You know, Amelia has gone up on stage and said something like, you are now the final character that we're adding. Uh, And I love that because it's true because all of a sudden there's this other breathing, you know, relationship and you get laughter in places that you didn't think it would be. (laughs) Um, And there's sometimes these like very moving moments where there'll be this absurd like release of, of joy or laughter followed by this really profound linchpin turning point of just like sorrow. And, you know, I think Michelle Hand has this really interesting moment near the end of act one where that occurs, where all of a sudden people are just like, you know, joyfully laughing. And then she really drops you down to this moment. Um, And it moves, I'm backstage and I've I've heard her do it now many times, but it it moves me even to hear her do that. Um, And it's, it's interesting to have that, I don't know, that live experience of of, you know, constantly rediscovering these moments again and again and again and having that audience also there to inform that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can trace that back to Jane Austen and her her incredible caliber of storytelling in that you have the joy, you have the sorrow, the stakes are real, mm-hmm. but it's it's funny and vivacious at the same time. Oh, complete, completely. That, like, there's something about her voice that is so palpable um, and her her personality comes through in the language that she chooses to use, and there's this like awesome wit that she has that arises, I think, sometimes out of these situations that are so dire. Yeah, right. It's like it's like the most I've ever laughed sometimes is in situations of deep sadness. Right. It's like, what is life <laughs> that <laughs> yes. will send you right on these roller coasters? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to piggyback off what you said there and and ask you about the language of Jane Austen, Mm. because I feel like when we talk about 
um, older stories, stories and plays that have been around for decades, centuries, mm-hmm. and we talk about, oh, but it's still relevant. A lot of that is circumstantial, right? Certainly. Oh, this, this play captures a moment in time that is relevant today because we're in a similar situation politically, socially, whatever. Mm-hmm. But with, with Austin, I think what makes it timeless is, is the characters, right? And the voice. Certainly. Um, how, how do her characters and speci- specifically like her female protagonists continue to speak to audiences today? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, what I'll say is that I think what is really evident when you read and, you know, and you are experiencing these characters is that they are individuals and that you might run into situations where in certain adaptations they seem like caricatures. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, you know, maybe shadows or echoes of what was originally on, on Austin's pages. But I think one of the things about this production in particular is that you really do see this nuance of person. And I think that that's key to really understanding is that, you know, honestly, many of our, our historical writers have been men. And to have a female be able to portray different experiences that would inform different people and different women. And that these women are also, yes, they're inside of a a period historically where we as a 21st century audience can say, wow, there's so many restrictions and there's so many rules, you know, but women today experience (laughs) their own fair share of restrictions and to be able to, you know, a really dear friend of mine sort of coined it, and and so I'm going to sort of use her words, but she's she said, honestly, all of the women in Jane Austen's books are not going to outlive sexism, um, just mm. as people in the 21st century, women in the 21st century, are not going to outlive sexism. Right. And they are working with the hand that they've been dealt as fiercely as they can, and that while they are doing that, they are funny and they are charming and they are caring and emotional and invested. And you can see people in your life reflected in that. You can see, you know, that funny friend of yours that always says that thing that you're too afraid to say, right? right? Or that friend of yours who at the right moment in time will come and sort of soothe your soul when you're hurting or that mother that just pushes you and those <laughs> buttons so hard, uh-huh. right? And 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 that that I think is is why people are so their hearts are so drawn to it is they see that they see these people that even though, you know, it is 200 years, they see that very presently at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it it's an extreme version maybe of what we see today in that all of these women, and, and particularly in this story, uh, the young women who are of marriageable age, mm-hmm. are being asked to fit inside this really strict box. Mm-hmm. But even within that construct, you're seeing all these different shades of femininity and all these different expressions of character. And they refuse to be, um, you know, stacked up like that. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, they, they are sort of, you know, sh- shouting through it all. But I am Elizabeth, but I am Jane, but I am Charlotte, but I, you know, and Lydia, right? That that everybody is, right, trying to navigate this. And, um, you know, some people, unfortunately, suffer harsher consequences than others. Um, But that's sort of also the luck of the draw. And that's also familiar to life today, right? There's so many things that you don't have any control over, truly. 
Well, I, I wanted to talk about Charlotte and the journey she takes throughout the course of this play. Oh, yeah. Can you introduce us to your character and, and what is she bringing into this play? What are her, what are her circumstances? Yeah, certainly. Um, so Charlotte Lucas is the very, she's the bestie. She's the very, very <laughs> dear friend of Elizabeth Bennet. And, you know, growing up in the same town, she's a bit older than Lizzie. And she... Hannah, our director, said this very interesting thing of like, well, why does Charlotte Lucas spend so much time at the Bennett home? What is it about that house of its chaos, of these people running around and the messiness of it that she's probably intrigued by? And I think there's something with her of Lizzie is her friend who who does say all those things that Charlotte's thinking and that Lizzie is that person that she feels comfortable and safe around to express herself Um, and, you know, watching her journey of being this bestie who suddenly is seeing the world around her change. So Charlotte's all of a sudden encountering, wow, people are getting married. Um, people who have always been in my life might not be here forever. And having to make this, um, pretty, um, deliberate choice to marry somebody. Yeah. Um, and the horrible, sticky, weird awkwardness of that person that she accepts <laughs> is the yes. fact that it's this guy who's like distantly related to Elizabeth, gonna inherit her house and all of that money, and had just proposed to her, right? He, Mr. Collins has, you know, made this grand, played brilliantly by Blake Siegel, um, he makes this amazing sort of introduction to the family, and he's weird and uncomfortable and says all the wrong things, and is like hilarious to watch, but like exhausting to be around yeah. for too long. And that you know, he, he's trying to do the right thing in, in marrying the Bennett sisters, and it seems like the best idea to Elizabeth's mother, but Elizabeth's like, no, I can't do that. Um, and suddenly, Charlotte's like, well, maybe I could. Mm. Um, and, you know, during this process, I think sort of like my interpretation of that experience, sort of just looking at where Charlotte's coming from, she has this father who, you know, made a decent amount of money and then, you know, went and spoke in front of the king and received a knighthood and then stopped working and was, like, terribly frivolous with his money in a similar way that Mr. Bennett has been. And she's not taken care of in the same way that the Bennett sisters are not taken care of. So mm. she's sort of in this position of, you know... I'm probably going to grow up and move into a rich person's house and be a governess. I will constantly probably be the person that's overlooked or a burden or annoying. You know what I mean? There, there's a future for her that doesn't look so hot and that Elizabeth and her, as Hannah has said, maybe you have a spinster pact. Maybe it's like you and Elizabeth (laughs) always have this idea that like, Hey, our lives might not be totally awesome in the future, but we'll be there together. And And yeah, that like all of a sudden this idea that maybe Elizabeth might get married terrifies Charlotte and that might propel her to make some, some choices. There's so, there's so much I, I understand about Charlotte (laughs) in Mm. terms of like, you might need to make choices to protect and help yourself that are, you know, seemingly very practical based off of the necessity of where you are. Right. Um, that are, and, and 
to a 21st century audience, you know, it's like, ugh, don't marry somebody <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, but it's so much more than that, right? She doesn't have any rights, right? She doesn't have any possible way of having money or property or and the jobs that are available to her are so singular that it's like, okay, well, this might be the only chance I get. Let me play this card as best as I can. Right. And I'm, I was thinking about it and I was like, oh my God, Mr. Collins is exactly like her dad. Because her <laughs> oh, dad no. has this like crazy reputation for being this like sycophant who's like this name dropper who's like so impressed with himself and his title in the book. We don't really see him in this production, but yeah. you know what I mean? So it's almost like the devil you know. It's like oh, she meets wow. this dude yeah. who's like just as ridiculous with his name dropping and just as much trying to play society as her father might be. And that sort of moment for that light bulb for me portraying her all of a sudden was like, oh, he's so safe. Mm, yeah. You know, that he's he's a nice guy. He's going to take care of her. He's annoying, but, like, she's not in any danger. Right. Yeah. It is a, a calculation. It's a it, an equation, unfortunately, that these protagonists have to make of um, self-preservation versus, you know, can I live with this for the rest of my life, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so you, you have examples like Charlotte's and, and, like, Lydia's, who ultimately does not make uh, a happy choice to kind of serve as the rule that proves the exception later with, with the more contemporary romantic storybook kind of stuff exactly. that we see. Exactly. Cause and, and Lydia to me is the counter of if Elizabeth is so fortunate and lucky to make a choice based off of her heart that is actually grounded in security yeah. versus Lydia makes this impulsive choice. I don't know if it's necessarily based off of her heart, but it's it's certainly this moment of I'm going to follow an emotional impulse that seems like a good idea to me, that seems really happy and exciting, yeah. but it actually has these really disastrous circumstances, um, consequences, excuse me, consequences for her. Um, because she's a teenager. Where she's a know. child. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that that in that way, it's it's fascinating to me in looking at the Bennett sisters and sort of the choices that they make and there's the way that they are at all points dealing with life in a way that's quite modern for that, for that period that they are looking at somebody and treating them like a person that they are engaging with the world based off of emotions and feelings. And, and in this way, it's, it's this dignity of self um, that would be, you know, seemingly a bit radical for the time period. That like, definitely, yeah, and and that you have these older generations that are sort of looking at the, <laughs> the young children, going, "What?" Uh, you know, when Mrs. Bennett is like, "What? You rejected him for your feelings? Are you nuts? Yes. Like what?" And that Lady Catherine would come in and go, "But who's your family? Like what? What on? Like she she cannot comprehend it that that Elizabeth and and her her nephew could be married because the status and rules of her world declare it impossible. Yes. Um, and I love that. I love, you know, watching that sort of generational tension because I think that that's, frankly, been around for a very long time, yeah. right? There's always that thing of the older generation looking at the younger generation going, what are you doing? <laughs> Um, and the younger generation looking at the older generation being like, come on, get with the times. 
Um, and that, that friction, though, I think is very important for equilibrium. That, right. that you need that push and pull um, because too much on either side maybe sometimes can get dangerous. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. There's there's so much richness to play in this story. It's really delicious. It's truly – there's so much going on at any moment in time, and there's constantly all these layers that you can just, like, take hold. And, you know, I'm constantly discovering stuff. Um, on stage and and just even thinking over it and like we've opened you know what I mean <laughs> which is really delightful it's really um, I feel very lucky you're still on the journey I know I'm still there it's cool when did you first encounter the writings of Jane Austen and, and which book mm-hmm. was it and what was that experience like for you so <laughs> I was I was in high school I think I was in 10th grade and I have to say it was my neighbor across the street gave me a copy of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's how it starts. That's how it starts. The gateway drug. And honestly, I was like, I saw the cover and I was like, this is kind of cool where it's sort of that like classic portrait and like half of Elizabeth Bennett's face is like falling apart and you see like her, her zombie jaw or, or and eye socket or something. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And you know, the text is is fairly on par. Like, the, you know, mm. it's not as though those books have been totally gutted. That, like, they actually use a lot of Austin's original words. Oh, gotcha. And so you're, I'm reading through it, and it'll be like, okay, okay, this sounds like, you know, I, you know, I'm in high school, so I'm sort of comparing it against other things I have to read for school. And then all of a sudden, there'll be this, like, weird zombie attack fight scene. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> It keeps, um, like, stringing you along, right? You know, you get the romance and the and Jane austen stuff, and then zombie attack. And then zombie attack. So I think I was I was very entertained by it. I, I'm quite sure, though, that I did not fully really understand, like, the, you know, all of the complications of the storytelling at that time. I think I was definitely, you know, reading it and and simultaneously then <laughs> comparing it to the BBC miniseries version. Right. Which I th- we had like a, I, I very clearly remember we had a moment in English class where it was like we had some days, like kill days, like days where we didn't need to be doing anything. It was like after finals or something. And our teacher said, you know, oh, if you're good, I'll, I'll put a movie on. And she chose the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. And Miss Young Coons, I remember getting up from her desk and stopping the probably then VHS right at the point where Colin Firth comes out of <laughs> the water with his wet shirt on <laughs> and being like, look at that, girls. And I went to an all-girls school, so I think probably the environment of that is is a little different. Sure. But I remember being like, oh, this is the same thing as that zombie book I read. <laughs> so, you know, it's very, it very clearly like a high schooler, maybe my particular high schooler experience of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it was a moment in my life, you know, where it was fun. You know, it was like my experience with it and exposure to it was very joyful. Absolutely. Have you since, you know, read, uh, the legit, I, I hate to say the legit Pride and right, Prejudice. Right, the like unzombified one. Um, pieces of it. Yeah. Um, for like in this process, sort of going through and, and having excerpts, I like shamefully that have to do with like Lizzie and Charlotte specifically to mine that. Um, but honestly, the process has really piqued my curiosity. Um, and I, 
not only Pride and Prejudice, but I'm like curious to sort of, we got this beautiful, delicious dramaturgical packet. Ooh, yeah. That I loved. And it's this, it's amazing. I think it's like somewhere around 70 pages of not only excerpts from the book, but also scholarly articles sort of informing what that meant. And I, just hearing sort of the history and the context and and all this juicy stuff, I really got, you know, excited about it. And I think that I will be in future approaching some Austin work due to, and thank, thankfully due to this process. Yeah. Um, but I mean, truly just the amount of support in, in, in doing this production and the detail and specificity that, that Hana provided to us. I mean, in this packet, you get everything from like what quills were made out of and that if you were right-handed, you got a goose feather that was on the left wing of the goose versus this is how ink oh was made to, you know, gentlemen learning how to be gentlemen would read George Washington's, like, list of, like, the rules of being a gentleman and, like, what those were and, you know, why writing letters to somebody that you're not engaged to is super scandalous. So that's why Mr. Darcy has to hand Elizabeth a letter in person so nobody thinks they're engaged. Like... Excellent. I just thought that that was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the nerd in me got really incredibly jazzed by that. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about Hannah because I feel like her Jane Austen knowledge runs incredibly deep and she's like this joyful nerd about it. What was she like in the rehearsal hall? What did she bring with her passion for this work? Oh, yeah. I mean... She you know, self-identifies Austinite. Um, her and Chris Baker, who did the adaptation, yeah. found each other. Um, and Hannah, I mean, just an incredible foundational knowledge of not only the time period in which Austin is writing and that world, but also Austin herself and what from Austin's life she might be infusing into her writing. And then just an incredible deep understanding of these characters. In and that in even our table work, Hannah being able to sort of look at the world from this character's point of view and then very quickly pivot to a different character's point of view mm. and be able to completely justify and flesh that out entirely. Like Hannah has a huge soft spot for Mr. Wickham. And Oh, interesting. Yeah. And like and Steven, who who is who's playing Wickham, um, and Hannah would have these very hilarious sort of back and forths, sort of like looking at that point of view and perhaps where he's coming from and also what makes him such a very delicious um, person to play. Um, and I love that. I love that she could, in that room, look at every single one of us and and have a really, truly deep, emotional, you know, sympathetic point of view towards them. And I think that that makes a really talented director. I think she's fabulous. I really loved working with her. Um, she had these great moments when she, we would do scene work on our feet and she just, she has this lovely style of coming from behind the table and coming onto the playing space with you and sitting with you and just sort of, you know, okay, what do you, what do you think's going on? And what do you think this is about? And, you know, I wonder what about this thing? And hmm. Have you, you know, and it, it feels like such a collaborative, lovely way to to, you know, tap into the emotional life of a person and you feel terribly safe and taken care of and respected as an actor and 
she gives you that little nugget that really can like pop open something for you. So I've just had the best time working with her. I really, yes. I really like her a lot. We've lucked out to have her and, yeah. and we're so lucky that we're able to bring this adaptation, which she previously directed in Baltimore, uh, here to St. Louis audiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so you started, of course, with the character work, the, the historical milieu and like figuring that out. And then you started layer, layering on all the like glorious uh, other components of this production starting with the choreography the big balls which are kind of the centerpieces of of the show um it's a straight play but it it feels like a musical during those sequences absolutely Um, yeah how did you go about figuring out where everyone's going to be and all the the dancing and stuff what was that process like the balls i think doing the balls was the most specifically like logistical um I would say that 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 you know in choreographing staging and doing those balls that was the most technically specific work of this entire process that Ron who's doing our our choreography is often on the fly coming up with beats and having to do fill because we need the dancing to stretch out just a little bit longer so that when this scene is happening, this little bit in this part of the stage can finish to give <laughs> Katie that much more time to run around yeah. to another part of the stage. Yeah. And, you know, then you get also the music is being written sometimes live as well. And so it's all these moving parts of, okay, well, this has to be a bit longer or this has to be a bit shorter or we need to pull focus to the dancing now or the dancing needs to maybe fade a little bit. And even, you know, I'm just watching this on the sidelines, but it's incredibly, you know, the, the minutia of it and the amount that timing is just like integral <laughs> to making the whole thing seem like this very seamless, beautiful push pull actually just took you know hours and hours yes of work yeah because it's not just like okay we're gonna talk now we're gonna dance mm-hmm. now we're gonna talk it's a constant like you said a push and pull of people emerging from the from the ball to have a conversation that the audience needs to hear mm-hmm. and then drifting back into it and and then you of course you layer on the whole question of costumes and quick changes and uh, everything has to be this well-timed machine right absolutely yeah there's there's quite a few you know it's it's that almost like noises off thing of like the yeah. franticness behind the stage of throwing things off and on <laughs> and rushing and then you know coming out in this like very calm you know very measured way to right. then just run backstage again and 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 frantically you know put on a hat or a headband or a jacket or you know whatnot um it's it's but it's cooking and thankfully we're at this place now where it's starting to get into our bones and and you don't quite have to put that part of your brain on alert the the technical part sure which is really nice to be able to actually just like live in the emotional life and be able to to do that that it's starting to become more habitual which I'm thankful for. <laughs> so you don't come on stage and all your hair is messed up and you're like, did I, did I get all the costume pieces right? Oh, you know? <laughs> yeah. No. And honestly, it's like I'm constantly worried that because about my wig or, you know, that headband that like all of a sudden probably has made a giant curl at a, you know, 90 degree angle out the side of my head. Or, of course. You know, yeah. <laughs> 
And another layer that you've added on, of course, is the dialect work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I've ever asked on the Quick Start podcast one of our actors about uh, working with Joanna Battles, who is uh, very often our dialect coach here at the Rep. Um, what what does that process look like to like refining uh, the dialect you're using in this show? Totally. And so, lovely thing about Joanna Bat- Battles. Um, so Joanna Battles was my TA in undergrad. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Where was that? That's at NYU at Playwrights uh-huh. Horizons Theater School. And so I've known Joanna since I was 19. And I, she was here the last time um, I was here at, at St. Louis Rep. And that was also a show that used uh, British dialects as well. So right. I've had the privilege to work with her professionally twice now, um, which I've really enjoyed because uh, she has, you know, she's really lovely in the way that she'll work with you, just sort of checking in at certain points. Um, of course, she'll send you like a packet at the beginning where you get um, some sound recordings. Hmm. You get uh, IPA or International Phonetic Alphabet which can be very useful for learning dialect work, but it, it can be more useful for some than others. Um, it's often just something, especially for people who are sort of audio learners, just hearing those sounds again and again and again. Um, luckily, in this show, you know, we're all coming from a, a similar class strata. Yeah. Um, there's some very delicious sound changes that are given to the Bingleys so that they can show sort of snobbery in status. Yes, yes. But for the most part, it's nice because, you know, sometimes if you're if you're coming with one dialect and you're speaking to another character who has a different dialect, you can start picking up the other person's. Um, I have this experience sometimes of, like, you know, somebody might pull me, uh, which it's just sort of like the power of, of sound. Yeah, sure. But, um, it's been, I don't know, it's, it's been really fun to, to play in this world. And, and she's been, Joanna is so lovely and supportive and encouraging. Um, she's just, uh, I really enjoy working with her. Yeah. She's lovely. I, I checked out, you know, your resume in preparation for this. And one of the things in the, I always love the special skills section sure, sure. Um, because you're going to see like, oh, I can scuba dive. I can fence. I can, you know, sail, you know, all these crazy things. And one of yours is you are a unicyclist. I, yes. Um, I learned in elementary school. I grew up on, in Seattle and uh, they were on the playground mm-hmm. and I cannot kick, run, hit, you know, anything that involves hand-eye coordination. And so I was like, oh, look at this weird thing that seems difficult to balance on. So certainly that must be for me. Um, but they, you know, I, it was just something I did, you know, to kill time during recess, I suppose. And then I kept doing it. And I think my parents gave me one for my birthday, maybe fifth grade. Um, and so it was just sort of this thing that I kept doing and then I, I took it with me when I moved to New York and, you know, sometimes you see these audition notices that are like weird talent. And yeah. I was like, well, I've got one of those. And so, <laughs> you know, you'll bring it in and, and ride around a little. It's, I have to say though, even though it, it's a solitary activity, mm-hmm. it is the least solitary thing that you can do is to ride down the street in New York City in a unicycle. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like everybody in the world has to comment on it. But, you know, maybe I'm also asking for it. Um, but it's honestly... <laughs> is, is that a common occurrence? You're just... 
unicycling down New York City Honestly, streets? no. But, like, you know, when <laughs> if I'm taking it with me to an audition or, like, you know, sometimes directors will find out that I can do it. Uh-huh. Or obviously, because it's also on my resume. And then they'll be like, let's just put it in the show. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's find a place for it. So then, of course, I'm, like, taking it with me to the theater. And, you know, then you'll get people sort of like, can you ride that? Or little, honestly, little children will sort of be very fascinated by it. And, of course, you know, I will ride it because children are beautiful. Of and, course. you know, it's they get very excited and mystified by it. And so, you know, that's always, I always love that. But, yeah. <laughs> so you picked up the unicycle at a young age. When did theater enter the equation? Actually, probably around the same time. Um you know, in terms of, like, what are you going to do with a kid f- during summer vacation? Right. And my parents tried a sports camp, and I was absolutely miserable. Um, and they were like, <laughs> okay, well, let's try something else. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, initially it was just this thing that was, like, fun to do with friends. And, you know, it was, especially when you're a kid, I think it's fun to just sort of like, you know, you're singing, you're dancing, you're right. moving around. You're playing pretend. It's fun. You're playing a pretend. You got a costume, you yeah. know, so fun. And, um, that I, you know, I really, I really enjoyed it. And then I had an opportunity when I was nine, the place where I went to this summer camp, they had some professional shows and they were doing auditions for a wonderful life and they needed a kid to play Zuzu. And so, I auditioned and, and, and got it, and I was so excited because I was going to get $100. Whoa! <laughs> Which to a kid is a lot of money, right? No doubt. Um, and that was my first professional show, and I remember just being so excited and and just feeling like, wow, this is such a cool thing. This can be a job? Wow! You know. <laughs> um, and that I just sort of you kept doing it. <laughs> and that- <laughs> you know flash forward and now you're here and now i'm here yeah. so you know cheers life's cool um yeah do you have a a bucket list of of roles or shows you want to take on in the future oh god you know we're sitting during tech and hannah leans over and she start, she says to us what's your favorite play and all of us look horrified <laughs> like, you're, the, you're like worried what favorite play <laughs> yeah. what and she, okay fine and she's what what pl- people do you want to play and we all still look horrified because <laughs> we're like, well, uh, and it's one of these things where I know it's it's hard. I literally, I think I thought about this for like two days to try and like, okay, what should I tell Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> the role I want to play. Yeah. But it's also one of these things where sometimes it depends on like the moment of where I am in life. Mm. But I I sat up I. You know, I don't do as much musical theater as I used to, and it's one of these things that's just not quite in my wheelhouse anymore, and truly just sort of admire and look at sometimes what those performers are capable of. And yeah, I I was like, okay, so in a pipe dream world, I was like, ooh, I was like, I want to be Squeaky from an Assassins. Yes. <laughs> And, and so I went up to her and I was like, okay, I've, I've figured it out. <laughs> She's like, yes. <laughs> and I told her and I was like, you know, I was like, I think it's just such a complicated, interesting show. And, 
that that role is so unusual and weird and cool. And I was like, and so that is, that is what I've decided. Um, so yeah, that, I think for the moment that where I am right now, I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Like I, I wouldn't, I would enjoy that challenge. That would be, that'd be fun. Awesome. I yeah. think you'd nail it. Cool. Oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> it's not just flattery. Thank you so much for joining us here. Um, continue having fun our audiences are loving the show they're loving everything you guys are doing so uh godspeed keep breaking legs thank you so much thanks for having me our pleasure